Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, the world is turning on its head. That, according to Kathleen, Kathleen Gaffney, co-director of Diversified Fixed Income at Eaton Vance, who joins us here in our 1130 studios. Kathleen, thank you so much uh, for joining us. So I want to start with this idea that the developing markets are emerging much more quickly and faster and growing faster than, than developed worlds, uh, which are kind of sinking. Does this mean that you like emerging markets high yield debt over U.S. junk bonds? I do. Selectively, we're finding good opportunities to invest in emerging market companies. And a handful of them are below investment grade, but rising stars, likely to make their way onto the global stage and become investment grade down the road. Can you just give us some examples so that we understand exactly the kinds of companies you're talking about? Well, our focus has been primarily in Latin America. America Mobile, I know, is one of the holdings in your uh, fund. In it is. So fund? Mexican Telecom, but very high, higher quality. Uh, I'm talking about some of the Brazilian companies, and Susano is a good example. Uh, a paper and pulp company. Uh, low-cost producer, number one. Uh, they came to market earlier this year uh, at very attractive spreads. That was right after the new administration, and there was uh, a lot of fear about protectionism. We saw a fair amount of new issuance that had to come with a premium. And what's interesting in talking to management, uh, what we saw was discipline and a drive to maintain that low-cost status, but without levering up. So I'm wondering, you know, a lot of people have been pouring money into emerging markets, debt, as well as currencies. And this could be what's been happening with the dollar earlier this year, with the dollar weakening and emerging markets currencies uh, really strengthening. Recently, it's been the reverse. You've seen some dollar strength. And uh, do you think that that will continue, that the dollar will continue to strengthen as benchmark yields rise? And what's the potential consequence for emerging markets? In the near term, I think you are going to see some dollar strength. The global economy is doing well, but the focus is on the U.S. and the unwind of the balance sheet. So we've seen yields start to move up and the U.S. is leading. That is going to draw money into the U.S. and push the dollar higher in the short term. That won't be so much of a problem for emerging markets if they... Uh, uh, have a fair amount of reserves. They got into a lot of trouble back in 2013 uh, when they didn't have the dollar reserves as the dollar strengthened. That's changed a lot. Yeah, there have been a pretty big uh, buildup in reserves. I have to wonder, though, uh, you're talking about how yields should continue to rise or are, have been rising in the U.S. And uh, earlier this week, Jeffrey Gunlock of Double Line said that the uh, Treasury market was facing its moment of truth as yields on the 10-year uh, Treasury surpassed 2.4%. Do you agree? And how high could this yield go? I do agree. Uh, and how high it goes, uh, probably not too high 
in the near term. But the important part for the markets is that it started. And we're seeing the impact of that today. Uh, we're seeing it with some equities on the retail side. Mattel cut their dividend. Uh, one of the trends during uh, the period after the global financial crisis is companies haven't invested. What they've done is they is they have borrowed and they've been buying back their stocks. Uh, a dividend cut, and we're seeing lots of interesting things this earnings cycle, uh, could indicate that they're concerned about where their cash is and the amount of debt relative uh, to revenues or their interest expense, I should say. Um, that's a warning sign. That's a signal. Do you think that there's a warning sign when it comes to high yield debt in general? Well, credit spreads are very tight. Um, you could argue that on a relative basis, they could get tighter, but it's that absolute level of risk. At 4%, you're not getting compensated for a highly levered company. So if you are invested in that particular kind of company and situation, what would you suggest to people? I really think you have to define credit risk, high yield, more broadly. That's why we found value in emerging markets, because you're able to pick up some additional yield to compensate you for the credit risk. Uh, you can also look at the bank loan market convertible market. There are other ways to get that credit exposure other than just U.S. high yield. And European high yield, the yields are even worse than in the U.S. So it's a struggle. Our our high yield exposure uh, is fairly modest right now. Kathleen, do you think that there are certain industries within the high, U.S. high yield universe that are uh, on the precipice of a pretty big fall? We're seeing pressure today, that's for sure. But which which do you think is real? Which do you think has legs? Uh, I do think that the pressure on the retail sector is real. And it's going to continue because there's already been a lot of pain there. There has been a lot of pain. Uh, what's interesting is we're seeing how companies are reacting. So at the higher quality end, you see CVS and Aetna, but all of it is a result of the world is changing. We've got a new economy. Tech is really driving it. And it's uh, it's going to make for some necessary decisions across industries. Thank you for coming in and spending time with us. Kathleen Gaffney is the co-director of Diversified Fixed Income for Eaton Vance and uh, helps to manage over $300 billion of assets based in Boston, of course, home to Bloomberg 1061, Boston Newburyport and 1330 in Metro West and the South Shore. It is a huge day in tech shares today. The NASDAQ 100 index is uh, up 2.5%, but uh, Alphabet and Amazon are experiencing much bigger uh, share price pops after beating analyst estimates when they reported earnings after the bell. Yesterday, Shira Ovide, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist, joins us here now. And uh, Shira, we were joking this morning that the expectation on the street was for $0.03 cents per share for Amazon, and they beat that. Yay! I mean, how good is this? Yeah, uh, profit doesn't matter at Amazon. Basically, it defies all the uh, logic of typical investing. Um, my favorite statistic is looking at Amazon's operating profit, which they seem to try to make as as low as possible. So the profit margin uh, in this quarter was 
0.79%, which is as almost as close to zero as possible. Um, what's the cash flow like? Uh, the cash flow is better, yeah. but it, it's actually um, that's actually shrinking too. I mean, Amazon has been in this period of intense spending. But on they still had cash flow of more than seven and a half billion last year. That is correct. Although those, y- yes. Okay, and I'm assuming that many people see brown boxes show up at their homes every day. Many people see brown boxes yeah. show up. I mean, look. And they I, might I, actually include medication, prescription medication in the future, plus your order from Whole Food. It is possible that Amazon, I mean, Amazon already delivers groceries um, through Amazon Fresh, but yes. it's likely they're getting more seriously into that business now that they bought Whole okay. Foods. Okay, so uh, um, to just step back for a second, it's all about a story, right? I mean, when yes. you invest in a company, particularly when you Absolutely buy a stock, right. it's about the story that you can tell investors to get them excited about the future. And that may be why the stock is up 12% today. A- Amazon is, I, I would argue, the most ambitious company, certainly in the technology industry right now, you can make an argument that they're the most ambitious company in the world right now. And the fact is, they are dominating two huge categories of spending, both retail, uh, electronic commerce, where they're basically all the growth in, in retail spending right now, and also cloud computing, where they've turned this um, Amazon web, web business company from zero to 18 billion in annual revenue, and it's really a disruptive force. And and groceries, you know, it's 800 billion a year in spending in the U.S. alone. Well, let's talk about groceries because they purchased Whole Foods, and uh, Whole Foods sort of is in the industry that typically has low margins, which is grocery stores, and yet it has higher margins than most of Amazon's businesses, including their core uh, business. And meanwhile. Their margins went down for Whole Foods as uh, Amazon cut prices. At what point does this matter that they've gained market share by cutting prices to the point where their margins are razor thin? Is that enough of a strategy to get them uh, to, to fit their capital structure later on? Yeah, I mean, I think to Pim's point, it's not really about where the margins are today. It's whether Amazon can leverage its acquisition of Whole Foods to grab a bigger slice of one of the largest spending categories in the world, which is food shopping. And look, if Amazon can become a major player in um, in groceries, that again, it opens another multi-billion dollar uh, annual revenue opportunity for this company. It's a, a big question whether they can succeed. They haven't been very successful in groceries for 10 years, but they now have kind of this pretty smart asset to help them get there. I just keep thinking of one word, Borders. Remember Borders books? <laughs> Amazon has a way of competing that really has changed the landscape for a variety of industries. That's not news. I think the big question now that ha- people have is, should they add to their holdings? In other words, you described it. The numbers don't really add up in the way that many investors are taught. Yet, the stock keeps moving higher. So is it a, is it a trap or is this? I mean, as long as Jeff Bezos is in charge, I mean they're buying aircraft, they're they're launching rockets. Uh, I mean this is an amazing, as you said, this could be the most ambitious company around. Yeah, I mean look, this company has a a track record of investing in things that seem insane for a long time and then making them into successes. So that's why you're seeing 
the stock price shoot up, um, even though they turned in, you know, kind of skinny profits. I want to bring in David Garrity. He's chief executive officer of GVA Research, which is based in Brooklyn. And David, uh, I want to get your take about whether you would recommend that people buy at this point, given the fact that valuations are already pretty high uh, and it's sort of unclear uh, where they go from here. I think the thing coming off of the results yesterday for Amazon that probably were most impressed investors on the margin is the fact that the integration of Whole Foods was actually profitable in the quarter. The company actually made $21 million on the revenues that Whole Foods contributed. To the extent that Amazon, by extrapolation, can do an effective job of integrating acquisitions onto its platform, we look at the valuation on Amazon stock and we all recoil in shock. But what we have here is a very high-priced currency, which could be used for acquisitions to the extent that Amazon decides to accelerate and take a buy versus build approach into going into new areas. Obviously, we've seen concerns or possible speculation raised yesterday that Amazon was going to get more significantly involved in the distribution of pharmaceuticals, drugs. Uh, Certainly a very high margin, certainly attractive area. And if we're now looking at Amazon as being a company that not only offers very high organic growth, but it's an effective acquirer, then we see a possible path here where growth could perhaps even accelerate. Echo. Tell me about Echo and Alexa. Well, to the extent that we saw prime subscriber revenues or subscription revenues rise by 59% year over year, Typically, prime buyers tend to have Alexa, they tend to have Echo, and to that extent, there tends to be more data capture of those higher income households on margin, which certainly means that if we're looking at a world where there is monetization of data as a way to drive shareholder value, it certainly seems that Amazon is clearly in the vanguard, in the forefront in that area. We may not necessarily be comfortable with it, from the standpoint of personal privacy, but investors are obviously very interested in what this says about the company's ability to tailor offerings in the future to consumers. Real quick, uh, we didn't really get into Google too much, but does this give you a sense, Shira, that they are successful at selling ads and have that pressure, uh, that that sort of monopoly at this point? I, I mean, it, look, Google is both growing insanely quickly and has very fat profit margins, and it seems like an impossible combination. They keep hitting it out of the park. Well, uh, shares of Google are up more than 6.5% right now. Thanks very much. Shira Ovidey, our Gadfly columnist when it comes to all things technology. Our thanks also to David Garrity, the chief executive of GVA Research. Well, uh, everyone may be getting ready for Halloween, and in order to have Halloween, you need costumes and party supplies. And here to help us tell us about the industry is Jim Harrison. He is the chief executive of Party City. They're based in uh, New Jersey, and uh, Jim is in our studio in uh, New York. Jim, thanks very much for being here. I notice you're wearing your orange tie and the black suit. Is that already because you're getting into the holiday spirit here for Halloween? I've been in the holiday spirit for at least 30 days as we've been building our stores and inventory. And uh, right now, it's, it's getting really hot in the stores. Over the next next uh, six days, 7% of our retail sales will occur. Annual sales will occur in the next six days. 
The interesting thing about our business, that's about half our business is retail. The other half is consumer products. The consumer products business is a lot less lumpy. It's 300 million birthdays in America every year, nice and smooth, and a season or a celebration every month. So what does your house look like? Describe what, how you've decorated it. Uh, we've got tombstones. We've got pumpkins. We've got skeletons hanging from trees. We've got lights that go on at night and a doorbell that plays creepy music. <laughs> Wow, you're that family. You are that family. Uh, We are the guy you don't want to live next to, right? (laughs) All right, but having said that, let's talk a little bit about the business right now. I mean, the stock has not been doing real well. It's down about 20% so far this year. What have been the challenges and what are you doing? The biggest challenge we have is really getting our story out. I mean, with our name being Party City, folks put us in a, in a retail box, and they think of us as solely a retailer. And as a result, that retail prism has really created a, a pallor, if you would, over our stock. Only 25% of our $400 million of EBITDA comes solely from our retail business. 35% on a standalone basis comes from our wholesale business, and then the remainder is the vertical model. We, because we uh, provide roughly 80% of what's in our own stores, in that world, we have the ability to make a manufacturing profit, a wholesale profit, and a retail profit. So 80% is what we call either a double or a triple, meaning we have two layers of margin. And of the triples, only 22% of the 80 is actually triples where we manufacture. We have nine manufacturing plants around the globe. We make costumes. We make our own uh Latex balloons in Malaysia, but we also domestically manufacture lots of product. Uh, we have a 60% worldwide market share in metallic balloons. We make those in Minneapolis. We manufacture plates, cups, and napkins here in the United States. We extrude plate cups and bowls up in Rhode Island. We do injection molded plastics down in New Mexico. So we do a lot of manufacturing. So our products go not just to the party industry, but to movie theaters, to sporting arenas, to restaurants and bars and stuff like that. I'm wondering, does Party City <clears throat> sell goods through Amazon? And, uh, you know, at some point, could you imagine not having a physical brick and mortar store and just focus on the manufacturing? So that's really two questions. Let me start with the first question. Okay. In terms of Amazon, on the party side of the business, uh, our products are generally available on Marketplace. Uh, Amazon does not bring in their, the party goods per se. And if they did, it would be from us because we uh, basically hold all the IP as well as the broadest selection of anybody in the marketplace. In, in terms of uh, our stores and opening stores, we uh, uh, recent surveys have shown this, this recent season on a, a number of surveys, anywhere from 60 to 75% of consumers want to go to a store to buy their Halloween goods. 35% will look online for inspiration, but 60 plus percent, anywhere from 60 to 75 want to actually go into the stores. And if you think about even Halloween in our business, we're a collection business on the party side. So if you're having a bridal shower, you're going to buy a bunch of stuff, AUR in the two bucks, a coordinated icon and imagery, and you're going to make your house festive and de- decorative. So it's a discretionary purchase, lots of SKUs. On the Halloween side, our point of differentiation is we call it mix it, match it, make it your own. So if you wanted to be Spider Girl, for instance, you could go to Party City and have 20 different Spider-Girl outfits that you could construct with all the accessories and, and uh, separates that we provide. Uh, Amazon, other folks on the web, Walmart, they provide costume in a bag. We do costumes in a bag, but it's a relatively small part of our total Halloween offering. Spider-Woman, you think I should do that? <clears throat> yes, by all means. <clears throat> I, I want to know about uh, a purchase that you did recently of a company called Grandmark. And I just so that may sort of offer a way to expand on the, the conversation a little bit. Sure. So Grandmark is a company in Mexico. They're a distributor. They're essentially very similar to our wholesale business here in the U.S. in terms of going to the broader market. They also have a manufacturing footprint, and it's basically income paper. So 
a lot of products that we currently source from China, a lot of banners, stickers, gift bags, gift wrap, we're actually starting to make ourselves in our now our own factory in, in Monterey. Okay, my quick question there was then the whole trade issue. Are you concerned about any of the uh, issues related to uh, trade, NAFTA, and so on? It's Once again, we're dealing with such a nominal price point that it's not really an issue. What's the biggest challenge right now for Party City? The biggest challenge for Party City right now is making sure that we stay ahead of the curve in terms of the consumer. The consumer today, especially the younger consumer, is looking for experiential. And so having a house party is maybe not number one on their list. They want to go to a theater or they want to go to a restaurant. They want to go on a cruise. They want they want experience as part of that celebration. So we're building out what we call our alternative markets group to get in front of that curve so that we're going into the cruise ships and into the restaurants and providing the products that will make those celebrations special. So do you also have uh, people <coughs> kind of cultivate what that experience would be for the cruise or for the restaurant or whatever else? Right. So it, yeah. it, it, it comes it comes in a number of different ways. One, in terms of creating environmental decorations, that's kits. In terms of creating a product for the celebrations themselves, creating a, a suite of products and menus that consumers can go on, select, and then we use our uh, e-commerce capabilities actually to ship directly to uh, to restaurants or wherever. Thank you so much for joining us. And My pleasure. Send Thank us you. a picture of your home with some sound effects. Jim Harrison, <laughs> Chief Executive Officer of Party City, uh, gearing up and has been gearing up for the past 30 days uh, for Halloween. Thank you so much for joining us. Healthcare, CVS Health Corp is reportedly considering a blockbuster buyout of health insurer Aetna and here to talk about uh, what this deal would mean for the broader healthcare industry as well as how exactly CVS would pay for this uh, is Max Neeson. Max Neeson, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist covering all things health related. Uh, Max, thank you so much for joining us. So can you give us a sense, first of all, of what the logic is behind this tie up and how likely it is at this point? Yeah, so there's kind of a, a two-part logic to this. The first is um, generally in healthcare, um, you know, vertical consolidation has benefits. If CVS, which in addition to running pharmacies, is a, a pharmacy benefit manager, owns an insurer, um, you know, all of those things that your insurer wants you to do to make uh, to make your healthcare cheaper, uh, use a mail-order pharmacy, uh, go to a cheap clinic instead of the doctor, it can push all of those Aetna enrollees uh, to its businesses. So there's that kind of direct benefit. And there's also the fact that there aren't that many other places for CBS to expand. Uh, it, Express Scripts and uh, United Health already control the vast majority of the pharmacy benefit in industry. There's not that much expense you could do there. And we saw with Walgreens and Rite Aid, you can't buy that many more pharmacies without running into antitrust issues. So um, it does make sense in that sense. All right, uh, Max, I'm trying to get my head around this, but at least right now I know that the investors in CVS are not too thrilled about this deal because the stock is down nearly 4%. CVS already has a contract with another insurer, Anthem, Correct. Yeah, so that, that's something they just signed. Uh, Anthem is starting a PBM as, of its own, but it's letting exp, uh, letting CVS run a substantial portion of it. Uh, that was just a week ago that they signed that, so that it's obviously going to be a complicating factor. Right, and right now, the leverage that a CVS has in order to negotiate drug prices is why? Because they have a lock on business directly tied to whatever the insurance company is that would provide or that you have. 
Yeah, so they have um, a big set of clients, both uh, insurers, also employers that contract with them to negotiate their drug prices. That kind of amalgamation lets them um, push for lower prices. The way they do that is by having a series of drug lists. So they have a what's called a preferred formulary where they can exclude certain drugs. So they can say, if you don't give us a discount, we're going to push people to your competitor's drug. The more people they have, the more leverage they have in those kind of negotiations. So this is this would be a tie-up that would be incredible for their bargaining position. How much is this a defensive move uh, in anticipation of Amazon.com plowing into healthcare, as everybody suspects they will? I mean, I, I think it's it's pretty clearly one because Amazon is a threat to so many parts of CVS's business. If it gets more directly into medicine, um, you know, there's the PBM part. If Amazon decides to play a role there, uh, there's retail pharmacies. Um, so obviously, moving to diversify and having kind of a captive uh, set of clients would really be a benefit for the company. Because at the end of the day, Amazon is is bigger better funded and better at the internet. So uh, they're a threat. <laughs> well, but let's talk a little bit about uh, the funding, right? Because this is not a cheap purchase, which is probably why CVS shares uh, have been falling and they really don't have the cash to pay for this. So this would be a pretty substantial leveraged buyout, no? Uh, it, it absolutely would be. I mean, uh, it would definitely have a, a, a stock component, but it's unclear how much of that they, they'll be able to do. It's going to be a significant cash outlay. CVS doesn't have a ton of cash. They already have more than $20 billion in debt. And this deal, um, based on some of the, the figures being thrown around, could cost $65, $70 billion. That, that's close to CVS's market cap. So it, it's obviously going to be a, a really big one. Hey, Max, I'm wondering if you could just give us an idea of what your thoughts are about the very business model that says if we can put as many individuals and as many corporations in between you and the service or the uh, no, seriously, the service or the product that you're buying uh, isn't I thought that was going to be done away with because of technology. You get rid of all the middlemen. You go direct to consumer. Why can't that happen? Why can't they do it? Why are they waiting for Amazon to give them the kick? Um, I mean, it's because being a middleman is extraordinarily profitable. <laughs> yeah, but when you have a, when you have Amazon breathing down your neck, I mean, we've already been through that in the financial industry. You had, you know, broke a, a wide swath of brokers. Now they're advisors because you can't make money, uh, you know, on pennies. So, I mean, it, that's kind of the hope of what people that if that's Amazon's hope if they want to get into this business. Do you see that, that as that, viable? Do you think that trend um, is going to happen? You know, it, the question is whether Amazon wants another very complicated, low margin business. Um, you know, they have sort of unlimited capacity for it, it seems. So I, I wouldn't rule it out. Um, the, the defense that you know, the wholesalers and PBMs are, are putting out is that, you know, this is complicated, there are regulatory issues. But, you know, in, in time, Amazon would be able to figure that out and, and its scale will always give it a chance. I, I was just going to say, you know, it's interesting. Shares of Amazon today are up eight and a half percent. Shares of Aetna down 1.3 percent. Shares of CVS down four percent. That kind of tells you something. Max, really quick, how likely is this to get through? Mm, I'm going to say... About 50-50, you know, just the, the divide between CVS's obvious need and the potential regulatory and funding issues on the other side. Uh, so we'll see. And you're going to be following it for this. I, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Uh, Max uh, Neeson, uh, Bloomberg. I, I have some insurance claims maybe you can help me with too. Uh, Max uh, Neeson, our Gadfly columnist. Wow, this when it devolved. Comes 
healthcare. <laughs> Indeed. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.